This is the McKinsey Podcast, where we help you make sense out of our world's toughest business challenges. Welcome to the new season. I'm Lucia Rahili. And I'm Roberta Fasaro. We have eclipsed the size of the economy we had pre-pandemic at this point with the growth that we've had. So now just imagine we've got the same size or bigger of an economy with 5 million fewer workers. That is a lot for us to be able to absorb. That was Shubham Singhal, senior partner and the global leader of our healthcare, public and social sector practice at McKinsey. He joins us today to share how the Omicron variant is causing business to rethink the COVID challenge. Shubham, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Lucia. Glad to be here. We're recording this conversation in the middle of an incredibly fast-moving surge in Omicron-driven COVID infections. Let's start with a little bit of context on why the Omicron variant seems to move so staggeringly quickly. The Omicron variant has a few important characteristics that makes it spread so fast. First is it actually evades prior immunity. The mutations were enough that even if you have a vaccine or if you've had prior infection, it evades that. And so that means that many more people will get the infection and are not immune to it. The second part of it is it is more transmissible. Even if you have a mild infection, you can spread it to others. And that's why we see this very, very rapid increase in the cases. And is that a typical trajectory for virus variants? In general, for a new variant not to emerge but to take hold, it has to outcompete the dominant strain. The way it outcompetes is by spreading faster. So yes, that is the natural trajectory. That doesn't mean that every variant that emerges is going to be more transmissible, but the one that takes hold is more transmissible just by definition. We heard a lot about herd immunity at earlier stages of this pandemic. What do we expect there? I think early on, there was hope, particularly with vaccinations and also by prior infection, we could get to herd immunity in a sense that we would be immune from further infection. There's general consensus today that we're unlikely to reach. Just take Omicron, for example, if it can evade immunity as a new variant, then it's really hard to say we get to herd immunity. If a virus will break through, there is no real definition of herd immunity. The consensus is that COVID will become endemic from the pandemic, which means that we will live with it like we do with the flu without as grave consequences as today. So many of us who were hoping for that hard stop, have to recalibrate now toward endemicity. How do we know when we're in an endemic phase? It is not a light switch event to get to an endemic phase because it is as much about the behavior and psychology that we all exhibit as it is about the epidemiology of the virus itself. So what do I mean by that? A few things will have to be true. We will have to have a level of disease burden, let's think about deaths and severe disease, which gets to a level where we're not overwhelming the healthcare system or having a very large fatality rate. 
Now, this is where, for example, Omicron has given some hope because it is a less severe strain which has now taken hold in that for the most part, and particularly those that are vaccinated or have some prior immunity, do not get very severe disease. The second part of it, which is as important, is do we mentally get to a place in endemic that we are comfortable getting on with life? We're comfortable going to schools. We're comfortable going to a mall. We're comfortable going to restaurants. We're comfortable getting together in our homes with our friends. And that is a bit of a psychological point that people have to get to and say, this is something we'll live with. As we write in our article that we publish on Pandemic to Endemic, we all still get into a car, strap our seatbelt and drive on. We have a lot of deaths on the roads even today. So the other part of Endemic, less with the disease, but its impact on business and on economy and our lives and livelihoods is when we are just able to be in a sense of normal without quite the level of volatility that we have today. That's really interesting. Let's go a little deeper into a few of those examples. Do you see movements toward endemic style behavior in, for example, the U.S. public school systems, where policymakers seem to be assessing the trade-offs differently than during earlier phases in the pandemic. And here I'll say that were we recording this conversation last year at this time, I would have been bracing myself for the interruption of one of my school-age kids asking me for a cookie. Both of them are now fully back in the classroom. So is that an example of a shift toward more endemic style decision-making? It is, because two things on this where consensus has to emerge. One is, what is the risk? So again, essentially severe disease or death. What is the risk? And there, a lot of the population as vaccinations have happened, and including for children, although not all of them have a vaccine available, there's a greater degree of comfort that people have that at least the worst outcome is largely off the table of death. The other side of it is we learned through the lockdowns that the learning loss was quite meaningful and substantial. If you just look at math and reading, and quite a lot more substantial for the younger students, first of all, because the way that they learn is by being in person and interacting and not just sitting on uh, Zoom, if you will. And then the second part of it is that we saw a degree of inequality really emerge as well. So it's one thing for those that have the resources and have the space in the home and the good Wi-Fi and an extra computer and so on versus lower income neighborhoods and populations where they don't have access to that. So we now understood what the risk is on the other side, which is we will have a population fall behind and inequality increase which we then balance against a reduced risk of severe disease or death as vaccines came in. And we look at it and say, you know what? We have to just have schools go on with it, recognizing their risks, recognizing that we'll need masks and other protocols, but we just have to keep moving forward because the cost is too high. Media headlines now seem to be teeming with stories of hospitals under strain, we spoke recently on this podcast with Gretchen Berlin, one of your colleagues in the healthcare practice at McKinsey, about the protracted pressure that nurses are laboring under and what might be done to help 
What are you hearing from your hospital clients about what they're grappling with now? It's very interesting. Let me start with, I was talking to the CEO of a pretty significant hospital system in the Midwest. This was at the beginning of January. And he said, for the month of January, I've had to postpone all of the other care and elective surgeries because we are overwhelmed with COVID patients. What is further interesting within that, while the ICUs of the hospital beds are full, 93% of the admits, the people that were in there, were not vaccinated, which is why in Omicron, even while it is less severe, for those that don't have vaccination are ending up in the hospital. And so we have overwhelmed them. By the way, we have seen this in other geographies where there is higher vaccination, some countries in Europe. You don't see that same pattern of the system getting overwhelmed. The other side of it is exactly as you said, that as Omicron spread, and particularly spread to those that are also vaccinated, not only is nursing staff stretched, we had a lot of them fall ill or get infected at least, and not be able to be at work. So the combination of the two is causing a fair amount of uh, overwhelming of the system. Now, in a world where we are vaccinated, in a world where we have a degree of immunity where infection does not lead to hospitalization as much or as often, then our health system can handle it. And that's the definition of endemic because our health system is designed for severe conditions where people can kind of, when they face that, be able to handle. But it is not designed for these kind of spikes that we've seen during COVID. Just one other thing, Lucia, I just will say, which is a real human cost we talk about it, and I just called it elective surgeries have been postponed. This is not like, oh, it'll be fine. A bypass is an elective surgery. <laughs> Bad things can happen with your cardiac condition, with, with a number of conditions that people have. So there's also a very real cost that has emerged here on people's lives of not getting the required care because we're so overwhelmed with COVID patients. Yeah, there's the human cost of that, which is obviously enormous, and the priority. There's also the way that interruption in health and well-being contributes to loss of work, as you described with the nurses getting sick. Are we seeing talent shortages and the talent gap that was looming as we went into this pandemic getting worse during this Omicron surge? And how are leaders navigating that? It absolutely is. We're still short by four or five million, the workers that we had prior to the pandemic. Some amount of it is that it has accelerated retirement of those that were close to retirement. And are we going to get them back? Don't know. And some amount of it is just, for example, you know, women with children who feel with the disruption that has existed with schools and the like, and frankly, in many cases, a fear where if you have children under five and don't yet have a vaccine, how do you protect your family? And so that's another one that is, you know, kind of straining uh, the system in terms of a talent shortage. Now, all this when, on the other hand, what we were worried about when COVID hit was, wow, the economy will go into a deep recession. It was deep but it was very short-lived and bounced out. And we have eclipsed the size of the economy we had pre-pandemic at this point with the growth that we've had. So now just imagine we've got the same size or how bigger of an economy with 5 million fewer workers. 
that is a lot for us to be able to absorb. And that's why across the board, we have talent shortages that are playing out. The airlines have this. Uh, if you get infected, the protocol is that you have to quarantine for an amount of time and not show up to work. You have already have shortage. You add to it when people have to be out of work. Shivam, you also mentioned supply chain and the supply chain issues that have resulted from the pandemic. How do we expect the current spike in COVID infections to affect supply chain resiliency? It's a very good question, Lucia. First of all, on supply chain to us is over the years or decades, we built up a very efficient global supply chain for most things, which was built to be just in time and highly efficient. What we learned is, while it's designed to do those things, and it's quite remarkable, it's not necessarily as resilient as we would like it to be. Now, to be fair, there's also a demand spike on goods that has happened during the pandemic. First, people couldn't spend on services to go out and you know go to restaurants, etc. They spent a lot on goods. Um, 17% global increase in demand for goods is a lot to be able to fulfill. And that is just on the demand side. Then on the supply side of it, you can have manufacturing shutdown. As we've seen, you can have ports either shut down or not be able to operate at full strength if there aren't enough people who are infected, who again are unable to kind of come in. The realignment of supply chains to incorporate resiliency takes time. But also, I, I would be hard-pressed to imagine that we'll continue to have many years where we would have close to 20% increase in goods demand. That is straining it either in that direction. As we hopefully get beyond this, we'll all stabilize our own purchasing patterns more to us, services and experiences, and a little less towards the goods that we've all been buying while we've been sitting at home on our favorite online retail <laughs> store. <laughs> so that'll, that'll, that'll readjust too, and which will help alleviate the mm -hmm. pressures. Let's turn to talk a little bit about what business leaders can do. When Omicron broke, many companies were on the brink of implementing plans for at least a partial return to the office. Does Omicron simply mean delaying that return? Or does it materially change the calculus for how return should be managed? One of the things that we said when we looked at and say to go from pandemic to endemic, as the transition will be, what is it that we need to do as a society and business being a very major part of that and business leaders having to lead within that? To really get this comprehensive approach to management for an endemic COVID-19 in place, what is the first pillar of that? Define what the new normal is. And business leaders need to do this with their employee population. So first of all, this is a difficult conversation, but one that leaders need to build consensus around as to what will we accept. If there's one case in an office, will we shut it down for the next 10 days? Or do we know how to actually, you know, kind of be able to deal with it in an endemic world? So they are going to have to do that because that alignment and expectation setting with employees is very important. It can't be, oh, come back now because cases are low, and then, oh, no, well, never mind. We're not going to do it because the next variant showed up. The second is they have to be able to track and be transparent on where we are against those goals. So there will be times 
where the spread may be so wide that we have to resort to a bit of a retrenchment from being in person. What are those thresholds? And how do we know in a way that we can trust that that is actually really playing out? Also, transparency on what are you going to do? Do you have a vaccine mandate or not? And if you have a vaccine mandate, where are you against that? Then we'll know at this point we'll need boosters. Where are you against that? Those are all points that will have to be tracked and communicated. The other thing that workplaces will have to do is to say, are we just going back to the workplace we used to have? Many times we had stale air, we had open cubicles, we, you know, like, or have we learned from this and said we have installed and reconfigured our workspaces in a way that we limit some of the spread? I think business leaders have done a great job through this time where working with public health authorities and others to make sure we have the right level of investment. And I think it is businesses have a very big stake as leaders to be engaged in making sure that the moment we have a couple months of low spread, if you will, that we forget to make the investments that are needed to ensure that if a variant emerges and when it emerges, that we are able to have those protections in place and frankly, more protections in place than we've had in the last year in place as well. Any sort of specific examples of tools or approaches that you've seen leaders adopt successfully, especially those who have already navigated the transition back to in-person working? Like, What's the role of testing, for example, in return to office plans? What we have seen people do, and there are many, for example, in uh, manufacturing or the food industry who, you know, went back early, actually, well before the vaccines even came out, and they did learn a lot. We saw one employer that has been able to achieve very high levels of vaccination, above 90%, and they are located in a geography that has, you know, been persistently low in the 40-some percent of vaccination. So this employer actually had on-site testing and vaccination easily available. So no one had to kind of find it, go somewhere, schedule it, etc. So they knew that when infection happened, they knew it as early as they could. So they could then, you know, kind of contain it from spreading very significantly. Do you have any concrete examples? They can be anonymous from clients that demonstrate how they change their office space, their office configuration, for example, for safety? They had to figure out and change the way, for example, how you would create parts of employees that came in at different times. So just think about simply, okay, the shift starts at eight, everyone shows up at eight, bunches up (laughs) around the entrance and so on. Well, you of course don't want that to happen. So how do you sequence and create different times that different people will come in. And so they did that. They made changes in their factory workshop and floor to say, how do we make sure that only that part of people interact with each other? And so we minimize not knowing. So if there is an infection, we can quarantine just that group versus have to shut down the whole site. They literally map through and say how people walk through their facilities and reoriented how that happened so that no two people would cross each other. By the way, you saw this when stores opened as well. 
pathways that marked where you stood. It was only one directional. Do you think testing and masks are kind of durably in our future in the workplace? Many of the countries uh, that dealt with the early 2000s SARS epidemic were actually quite a bit better prepared going into this pandemic or the epidemic as it began in parts of Asia. And they have adopted, you know, mask wearing. You will see it. And particularly at, you know, different times of the year, you'll see many people wear it. Now, whether we in every country, people are going to be willing to do that. That's a societal choice over time. But we do know they are effective, particularly if the spread is high. I can imagine, even if in geographies where we don't want to adopt it in whole as change in our lives, many of the workplaces or other places where people gather, you could see these emerging. For example, maybe the summer is okay, but next fall, winter, we again, have heightened risk, and we see those kind of come back. Testing is an interesting one because I do think for a period we would see it be a part of it. The reality is it is also quite expensive today. So how much testing is ubiquitous or not will a little bit depend on the ability for us to get some of the cost of testing down. Even an antigen test today is, you know, somewhere between 15 to $25. If you're doing that very regularly, that adds up quite quickly. And a PCR test, which will be closer to $200, we are going to have to see if testing becomes and stays a big part of how we manage. We're going to have to figure out how to innovate to have the cost come down to about a dollar or $2 a test. How might the timeline to endemicity play out differently across different geographies? And I think the most important driver being what is the level of immunity in the population? Even if it's not immunity to infection, it's immunity to a severe disease and death. The most effective tool that we have for that today is vaccines. And so what you will see is countries in which we have high penetration of vaccines and particularly high penetration of high efficacy vaccines. Added to that, prior infection, uh, which does also bring some degree of immunity. The combination of that will determine how quickly they move to endemic. Countries have followed very different paths, not only on vaccination rates, but also on the level of spread that they have allowed in their population. And so we will continue to see a great degree of variability across countries in terms of when they approach endemicity. You have been at the forefront of McKinsey's COVID response efforts since the outbreak of the pandemic almost two years ago. How optimistic are you that we have brighter days to come? And on what time frame, if so? I should at the outset say the cost to human life in many ways has been very significant and continues to be. That is something that we all have had to live with, and it has affected us. On the other hand, if you look ahead, you would say there are brighter days ahead because we have figured out how to do certain things in the space of less than two years. And so that, to me, is the part of optimism, which is we have done so much and innovated so much because of necessity. And as we harness that and continue to learn from it, I think it'll be great. So while we feel great about vaccines and the mRNA, for example, platform, 
The mRNA platform was created to try to treat cancers. I mean, we could get excited about where it goes next with the kinds of treatments we might be able to develop because we have accelerated some of our understanding of how this might work out. It will only accelerate from here is the way I kind of see it. And it's, it, there's a lot to be optimistic. It just is sobered by the fact that we have had so much loss of life. Shubham, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Shubham expressed some optimism about future applications of the mRNA technology. Well, Catherine Hayhoe also is optimistic, but her focus is on the environment. She's the chief scientist for the Nature Conservancy, and you're about to hear a clip of her from our Author Talk series for the book she recently wrote, Saving Us, a climate scientist's case for hope and healing in a divided world. As a climate scientist, I don't find a lot of hope in the science itself because often it seems like every new scientific study shows us that climate is changing faster or to a greater extent than we thought or affecting us in new ways. The giant boulder of climate action is not sitting at the bottom of an impossibly steep cliff with only a few hands trying to push it up. That giant boulder is already at the top of the hill and it's already rolling down the hill in the right direction and it already has millions of hands on it. And if we add ours, it will go a tiny bit faster. And if we use our voice to encourage others where we work, where we live, that all of the organizations we're part of, our place of worship, our neighborhood, our children's school, it will go even faster. Climate change is the most politically polarized issue in the whole country. And it's not just the United States. And part of this polarization is expressed through sciencey sounding objections. People say, oh, it's not real, it's not us, it's the sun, it's volcanoes. You climate scientists are just making this all up to line your pockets with government grants. If we wanted to line our pockets, there's a lot easier ways to do it than inventing a global hoax and maintaining it for 200 years. That's how long we've known that digging up and burning coal and gas and oil produces heat-trapping gases that wrap an extra blanket around the planet, causing it to warm. But today, just 7% are dismissive. 70% of us in the U.S. are worried about climate change already. The time to act is now. But what's holding people back are two things I talk about in the book. Psychological distance and solution aversion. When you poll people across the United States, 70% of people are worried and more than 70% agree that it's real. About the same numbers agree that climate change will affect future generations. Then you ask, will climate change affect you personally? And the numbers plummet. Only about 40% of us agree that it will harm us personally. And even those of us who are concerned about it, we still think it's an issue for the future, for people far away or for people who care about other things than we do. The two hardest chapters for me to write in the whole book were the chapters on fear and guilt. Fear serves a purpose. Fear wakes us up. Fear shows us that there's a problem. And if we don't fix it, it is the fate of civilization itself that hangs in the balance. It's not about saving the planet. The planet will be orbiting the sun long after we're gone. It is quite literally about saving us. But here's where the choice happens. If we know what to do with the fear, if we know how to act, then that fear energizes us. It motivates us to act. 50% of people in the US feel helpless. That idea that if I do something, can I even make a difference? Fear paralyzes us. Here's the thing. If we don't act, 
we are doomed. We have something that is more powerful than our footprint, more powerful than our individual actions. And that is the shadow that we cast. I started looking at history. I started looking at our modern industrialized society. I started looking at how things had changed radically and significantly. Civil rights, women getting the vote, the eradication of slavery. The world has changed in really massive ways along the same scale of the changes that we are talking about that must happen today. And how did it happen? It was because very ordinary people, people of no particular power or wealth or fame, people, many of whom we don't even know their names today, they use their voices to call for that better world, to advocate for change, to say this is not the way things should be and there is something better. And because of them, the world changed. That's the way it's changed before, and that is the way it can and must change again today. We all have responsibility, a differentiated responsibility, but a responsibility nonetheless. So that's what the big climate meetings are about. These climate meetings are a chance for all of the countries to show up to the global potluck dinner, so to speak, and to bring their contributions. And it becomes painfully obvious who is and who isn't contributing their fair share to the Paris Agreement. And so it encourages us to up our ambition together. And so if I were a prime minister of another country or the president of another country, I would be looking very carefully at all the dishes that people brought to the global potluck. It begins with them, our leaders, using their voices too. And here's the thing. If we give up, if we decide that we're doomed, we are. But what does make a difference? is action. Thanks so much for listening to the McKinsey Podcast. I'm Lucia Rahilly. And I'm Roberta Fasaro. Find us on mckinsey.com. We'll have a transcript of this episode up shortly. And check out the McKinsey Insights app, where you can find this podcast and other helpful content updated daily. And if you would, we'd love for you to leave a rating and a review. We'll see you in two weeks. 